Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 4. Job chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses in Job 4 and 5. You'll need a Bible for that. These guys have some. So as they make their way to the back, if you need a Bible, get their attention. And those Bibles are marked at Job 4 for you. Job chapter 4. Most of us get more advice than we really want. For example, if you happen to mention that you're having a particular ailment, you may well immediately get, have you been to the doctor? And you may be thinking to yourself, wow, you mean there are people who get paid to deal with stuff like this? Now, of course, you already know about the doctor option, even if, for whatever reason, you don't want to use it. Or you may not only be advised to see the doctor, you may get medical advice directly from your friend. Perhaps it's a home remedy or a particular herbal combination or an alternative treatment that they've discovered. I'm not saying anything about whether any of these things work. My point is that there's no shortage of them, nor of enthusiasts who recommend them. One of the shows that I used to watch as a kid was the Beverly Hillbillies. One episode was about Granny Clampett's surefire cure for the common cold. Jeb and Jethro and Ellie Mae were swore by it. Every single time they had a cold, they would take Granny's remedy and it would take care of the cold. And the same was true for all of the folks back home. Without exception, every person who took Granny's cure was healed of their cold. As I recall in that episode, a potential investor heard them talking about it and saw it as a possible gold mine. So for the entire show, he begged to buy the secret, only to be told that it's just that. It's a secret. But at the end of the show, Jeb gave the punchline. Mister, I can't give you the recipe, but I can tell you it works. And we'll be glad to let you use it. Whenever you have a cold, you come on over. Granny will give you the cure. And then in a week to ten days, you'll be as good as new. My dear mother, now with the Lord, would sometimes share her opinion on things that she had no idea about. If she or someone else was having trouble with their car, whatever the symptoms, she would ask, have you checked your distributor cap? Now, I think that's because on a couple of occasions when she had car trouble, that was the solution. So she suggested it for whatever was the matter with your vehicle. This is not just the advice that you get from friends and family and coworkers. There's now all the information with which we're bombarded through various forms of media, TV, radio, billboards, the Internet, social media. So you really cannot protect yourself completely from information overload and unwanted advice. But you can do this. You can be careful about the advice you give and the advice you listen to and heed. Now, as we continue in our series in the book of Job, chapter 4 introduces the words of a friend of Job who sets out to advise him on why he's in his predicament. That predicament is difficult in the extreme. Chapter 1 tells us that Job was, quote, in verse 3, the greatest man in the East. He was a man of sterling reputation and he was a man of means. 
But chapter 1 tells us in a single day he lost all of his possessions. And it tells us on that same day he also lost all of his ten children. In chapter 2, we're told that Job himself was afflicted with painful sores from his head to toe. So that this well-respected man was reduced to living outside the city at the garbage dump with the other outcasts from society. Job demonstrated amazing faith in God in the midst of all of this. Saying in chapter 1 and verse 21, After the loss of his material goods and his family, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And then after the loss of his own health in chapter 2, in verse 9 he says, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in both chapters, Job is commended for his moral uprightness. And he's, it's confirmed that he's maintained his faith throughout. Chapter 1 and verse 22 says of him, In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. In chapter 2 and verse 10, after he lost his health in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Nevertheless, though Job has extraordinary reverence for the Lord and the Lord's prerogatives to do as he will, Job finds himself bewildered at why the Lord has chosen to bring such calamity upon him. And he cries out, as we saw last week in chapter 3, in the midst of his despondency and his depression and his confusion. Three of Job's friends heard about his plight and they agreed to meet together at Job's hometown, each coming from different places. When they arrive and they see Job, they cannot believe their eyes. And chapter 3 tells us for a full week, they sat with him in silence. And we saw last week that that's the customary time period for mourning for one who has died. Job breaks the silence in his lament in chapter 3. And now in chapter 4, we're going to hear from the first of these three friends. We need to ask God to help us to take what is said and to process it according to what God tells us is true throughout his word, so that we can know how to advise and what advice to receive and to give to others. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we're thankful to you for this sacred hour. It's sacred in that it is set apart, and it is set apart because it's the gathering of your people and you meeting with us. There is no time like this in the rest of the week where your people gather on the Lord's day in your presence. And Lord, we want to and we need to hear from you. We thank you that you've communicated to us in your word. We thank you that we have this time to consider what is said in these chapters in Job. And now we ask you to help us. Help us to have clear minds. Help us to settle our minds from all that we brought here with us today. And to open our hearts to hear from you and to apply what you say. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? He's saying there, in effect, I hope you'll allow me a word. Actually, it turns out to be many words going all the way through chapter 5. I hope you'll allow me a word, but I must now speak, says Eliphaz. 
And we're reminded that he's Eliphaz the Temanite. We were told that back in chapter 2 and verse 11. That when these three friends showed up, they were identified by their names and also from where they, they came. And he is from Teman. Teman, which would later be renowned for its wisdom. As we saw last week through the prophet Jeremiah. God says in judgment concerning Edom, where Teman was located says this, concerning Edom, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Is there no longer wisdom in Teman? And we see the importance of Eliphaz himself now as this wise man who has come to speak into Job's situation. The importance of Eliphaz in particular, we see not only in where he's from, but in the very structure of the book of Job itself. You see, in the 42 chapters of the book of Job, there are, throughout uh, most of those chapters, the book is comprised of three cycles of speeches that go from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 31. The first cycle of speeches is chapter 4 to chapter 14. And then there's a second cycle from chapter 15 to chapter 21, and then from chapter 22 to chapter 31. And the first two of those three cycles include each of the three friends speaking and then Job responding to each of them in turn. The third cycle is in a bit different order. But in all three, there's something significant. It's Eliphaz who's the lead speaker. And his words introduce the key points that are developed later by the other two friends. In fact, so significant is what Eliphaz has to say that at the end of the book, the Lord speaks and he specifically addresses Eliphaz. The various speeches by the three friends, and then there's a, a fourth guy who enters toward the end of the book named Elihu. These are all examples of counsel that's based on insufficient information. In 15 chapters, they say essentially the same things to Job, but in other words. The counsel is not helpful, and as such, it serves as a warning about how not to give or receive instruction to and from others. Now, if you don't yet have your outline in hand, I encourage you to take that out. It's inserted in your program as we do each week. And you see in the outline that the two major points I have, the very first word is counsel. Now, for many, that word counsel connotes a a formal session where you sit or you lay on a couch and most often you pay someone to listen and diagnose. But I'm using the word counsel more broadly of anyone telling you how the world works. Anyone who's giving you their two cents on whatever may be at issue. In the book of Job, his three friends are putting their spin on what has happened to Job and why it has happened. And I say in the outline, first of all, that counsel may be insincere. Counsel may be insincere. And I say that because of what Eliphaz says in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4. Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. Job is in, is in great need of comfort, and Eliphaz actually begins well, reminding Job of his long-term and successful ministry to other people. 
Job has been a dispenser of wisdom, and he's been a help to many. But as we'll see, Eliphaz builds up to tear down. He's convinced that Job has caused his own problems, and that conviction compels him to speak and to speak directly. Now, we've all probably done a version of this or had it done to us. You're going to say something to someone you started out with. You're an amazing person. You've helped me and others over many years. So far, this is great. But then they say something like, and that's why I'm so surprised that you would. Or, I so appreciate you and your ministry, and I've been helped by it in so many ways. And then you wait for the shoe to drop. But, and here's the but from Eliphaz. It's in verse 5. But now trouble comes to you, and you are discouraged. It strikes you, and you are dismayed. So it starts out with the flattering words. And then he starts to come in for what he thinks Job needs to hear. Friends, let me recommend to you, as the Bible does in many places, Not to be fooled by the person who fawns over you. Have you ever known the person who's over the top with their flattery? You've become like a brother or sister to her. But you need to consider that you're just the latest of many former and all too temporary friends for that flatterer. Who uses flattery for their own ends. To have you admire them or to have you as their exclusive friend whatever that ulterior motive might be. In this case, it's done to accuse Job of hypocrisy. Job, you have counseled others, verses 3 and 4, but you don't practice what you preach. Flattery. Empty words. I recently communicated with a man who is leaving his wife. Not for biblical reason. A woman to whom he had pledged his undying love in front of me many, many times and in front of others. I contacted him to confront him with his sin. I made a biblical case as to why he cannot do what he's contemplating. He responded not with God's word, but with the normal lame. Well, you know, we're both at fault in this. There's blame to go around. Ken, we could argue back and forth. But it was, what really caught my attention was his last statement to me. Quote, I love you, brother, and that is a fact, always will. But you know what occurs to me? That's that's what he said about his wife over many years as well. Right? Empty words are empty words, even if they're filled with religious jargon. Even if they are pious sounding. And that's why Proverbs 26 warns. Though speech is charming, do not believe it. A flattering mouth works ruin. Are you somebody like that? Who uses your words that way with other people? Or is influenced easily by those who use their words that way with you? Words can be and all too often are insincere. 
Counsel can be insincere, but I say in your outline as well, counsel can be ignorant. It can be insincere, but it can also be ignorant counsel. Eliphaz and the other two friends of Job are going to counsel him in the chapters that follow, but none of them knows what we do about why all of this has happened to Job. We have something they didn't have. We have chapters 1 and 2. We're told in chapters 1 and 2 that it actually happens because of God's confidence in Job's character and God's certainty that Job is going to pass the test of his devotion to the Lord. But Job and his friends are all unaware of that. Job is ignorant of this too. Job doesn't know. But how does Job respond? Job's ignorance translates into confusion for him. I don't know why this is this is happening to me, but his friend's ignorance does not affect their confidence. <laughs> you hear that? <laughs> their ignorance does not affect their confidence. Some of the most strident and most confident people speak stridently and confidently in their ignorance. They are sure they know what's going on, and they're now going to tell Job. Former Vice President Al Gore produced a a movie called An Inconvenient Truth. And in it, he quoted Mark Twain as saying, It ain't what you don't know that hurts you. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Now, I have an inconvenient truth for Al Gore. It wasn't Mark Twain who said that. It was a guy named Josh Billings. But that has nothing to do with the sermon. I just wanted to kick Al Gore. But what Billings said is true. Sometimes we speak with confidence when, in fact, we ought to humbly acknowledge that we just don't know. What they do know is what I've mentioned to you a couple of times so far in this series. They know their retribution theology. Remember, retribution theology is the idea that God rewards good and he punishes evil. And if you if you do good, then good things happen. If you do bad, bad things happen. And you can look at what's happening to know how you're doing. So if bad things are happening, you must have done something bad. If you're being blessed and prospering, then you must be doing well. That's retribution theology. And this is taught in some places throughout the Bible, if understood in overall biblical context. In the very first message in this series, we saw that the book of Proverbs in particular gives warrant for belief in Retribution theology, again, taken in overall context. Proverbs says, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. Proverbs goes on to say, before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. So if you're being honored, if things are going well, then that's because you're doing well with your humble heart. And again, the righteous eat to their heart's content, but the stomach of the wicked goes hungry. So if you're suffering financial ruin, then that would suggest that there's something that you're you're doing wrong. You're wicked. But remember, as I reminded you then, that Proverbs are not designed to be, by their very nature, legal guarantees. That's why they're called Proverbs. They're proverbial, that is, they are generally true. And in that sense, they're similar to some of the rights that we have in our Constitutional Bill of Rights. You know that none of those are absolute. That there are some exceptions to every one of those, and that's true of 
these proverbs as well. Generally, it is the case that those who live in a certain way will reap the natural consequences of that lifestyle, but not always. Is it not true, and does the Bible not teach us, that there is grace despite disobedience? That you may not have lived the right way, but nevertheless, God in His grace has treated you greater than you deserve. Or, there's formative grace even in obedience. So we're not living in disobedience, we're living in obedience. But nevertheless, God, by His grace, is forming His character in us. And He uses providential circumstances, sometimes suffering, trial, in order to produce that. It may appear to be punishment when, in fact, it's God testing and pruning and growing. But what Eliphaz and his friends bring to the table is their ignorance of what's really going on, but their confidence that they know what's happening. And it's based upon their retribution theology. That it always happens this way. If it's bad, you've done bad. If it's good, you've done good. And so he asks in verse 6, Should not your piety be your confidence in your blameless ways, your hope? What makes that question of Eliphaz ironic is that these very descriptions were already used of Job in chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 1 and verse 8, in chapter 2 and verse 3, where God commended Job to Satan. The same Hebrew words are used, piety is translated upright in chapters 1 and 2. And blameless is used in both. Chapter 1 and verse 8, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright. Again in chapter 2, The Lord said, There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. In verse 6 of chapter 4, Eliphaz is saying, If you were really as pious as you claim and seem to be on the outside, then you wouldn't be as shaken and insecure as you obviously are based on what you've just said and what we saw last week in chapter 3. He's taking what he knows, Eliphaz is, and he's seeking to apply it, but he's failing to account for the possibility that he doesn't know the full story. And as a result, he draws improper conclusions about Job. Counsel can be ignorant. Ignorant meaning you don't know. You don't know the full story. And that's the case with Eliphaz and his friends. It can be ignorant, and that ignorance shows up in the three ways that I have in your outline. The first is this. It can draw unsupported conclusions. So the counsel you give or the counsel you receive can be... Ignorant counsel. We don't know the the whole story. And not knowing the whole story, but having the confidence that we can speak into it, we can draw unsupported conclusions. Their assumption is that this is happening because Job sinned. Verse 7 of chapter 4. Consider now, says Eliphaz, who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? I have observed... Those who plow evil and those who sow trouble, reap it. At the breath of God, they perish. At the blast of his anger, they are no more. In the cycles of the debate that go back and forth in the chapters that follow, Eliphaz is going to make the same case that if you're suffering, it's because you did something wrong. If you're prospering, it's because you did something right. 
Now, we can, if we're not careful, and often do, if we're not careful, imply the same theology when we look for a reason for every untoward thing that happens to someone. Now, truth is, if you get drunk and you then get in your car and you get in an accident, you are obviously reaping something you've sown. There's a correspondence between what you did and what happened, right? Certain diseases can be caused by things we do. But, of course, many and most others have no direct cause and effect. It's just life in a fallen world, in a sin-cursed world, and we're all affected by it. So, friends, be careful in hurling you reap what you sow. The Bible teaches that, as long as you put it in its right context. Because that difficulty that's being sown, or that's being reaped, may not be punitive. And the implication of what we're saying to someone else, well, you know, you reap what you sow, you made your bed, now you got to lie in it. The implication of that can be a prideful one. That kind of thing is not happening to me, so I must be better than you. In chapter 21, Job refutes this absolute application of retribution theology. In fact, if you'll hold your finger in chapter 4, I invite you to turn a few pages over to chapter 21. And in this second cycle of speeches, Job is responding yet again in chapter 21, the second of the three cycles. And in verse 7 of chapter 21. Verse 7, Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? You see what he's doing there? You're telling me if you're, if you're wicked, then it turns out bad. But he's saying, you know, I see a lot of wicked people who live on. And they increase in power. They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not on them. Their bulls never fail to breed. Their cows calve and do not miscarry. They send forth their children as a flock. Their little ones dance about. They sing to the music of timbrel and lyre. They make merry to the sound of the pipe. They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. And who can dispute that that's the case? That is absolutely the case, isn't it? It, doesn't always, it isn't always the case in this life that you do evil and then you're recompensed for it in a one-to-one kind of fashion. You see, friends, in order to know why something is happening, you need the one who did it or caused it to tell you. And if you don't have that, then you need to have the humility to say, I don't know for sure. In order to know why something is happening, you need the one who did it or caused it to inform you. Absent that, you don't know, and all else is speculation. You see this principle that you need to be told by the one who caused it in order to know for sure. You see this principle in an episode in the life of Jesus when God the Son walked the earth. And in John chapter 12, we're told that Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. And he said that in the presence of a crowd. And then it goes on to say, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. 
And the narrative tells us the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. So there's speculation. You see that? There's speculation about what happened. There was some audible disturbance that we, that we all heard. But now we're speculating as to what actually happened. Some said it thundered. Some said an angel had spoken. But I actually know what happened. These guys are speculating. I know what happened. But you know how I know what happened? The next verse says this. <laughs> Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit. You see, those that thought it thundered were wrong. Jesus says it was a voice from heaven. It wasn't thunder. But how do we know that? Because the one who caused it, the one who did it, has to tell you. And if you don't have that, then you need to have the humility to say, I don't know. I recently heard about someone who, in the aftermath of a suicide, was remarking, in the aftermath of someone taking their own life, Individuals remarking to another person just hours after it happened, speculating about why this person did what they did. Quite unprofitable, don't you think? You don't know. And when you don't know, it's best, as I say, to admit that and even, frankly, friends, not to be unkind, but just keep our mouths shut. Some of the best direction you can give yourself and then to others is to ask the question, how do you know that to be true? Or to say when you're talking to someone, look, we don't know this, we're just speculating. It may be, but we don't know. Counsel may be ignorant. And in that ignorance, it may draw unsupported conclusions. And I say in your outline, it may draw Unnecessary conclusions. Unsupported conclusions, but also unnecessary conclusions. As Eliphaz goes on in verse 12 of chapter 4, we're going to read it in just a moment, a, a lengthy passage, beginning in verse 12. But he has this kind of weird thing where he, he does make a claim to know. And read with me. Beginning in verse 12, a word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it amid disquieting dreams in the night. When deep sleep falls on people, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped and I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes and I heard a hushed voice. This hushed voice said, can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth? Between dawn and dusk they are broken to pieces. Unnoticed they perish forever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without wisdom? Eliphaz here is claiming, I have been told, I have been given revelation. I've been given a revelational dream and a, and a vision. Now, the Bible does mention at time, does mention times when God communicated on occasion through both of those. Now, I just as an aside, he doesn't do so anymore. 
In the first part of your Bible in particular, God would speak, he would reveal, he would expose things through visions and dreams. But I call your attention to your New Testament in Hebrews chapter 1 says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. And those various ways were sometimes visions and dreams. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. But even though the Bible does mention God communicating truth in the past by dreams and visions, this particular one of Eliphaz, where he claims to have gotten a secret from God, cannot be, in fact, a revelation from God because it's wrong. Though it is true that all people sin, which is all this is saying, it does not say anything about Job's plight being due to particular sin or sins, which is what Eliphaz is suggesting. Now, I'm speculating, so I'm labeling it that. The Bible doesn't tell me what was going on with Eliphaz, but here's my speculation. Eliphaz has been mulling over in his mind what's going on here. He's trying to make what's happening with Job fit with his retribution theology. He's thinking about that, and when he's sleeping, it's still on his mind, and he has a dream about it, and he claims that dream is from God. But it's not applicable in any case to what's happening with Job because he's suggesting, Job, you're in this trouble because of something you did and God has already told us. That's not the reason he's in this. So once you assume a particular position, now that clouds the way you see what happens. That's what was happening with Eliphaz. It's what was happening with Jesus' first followers in John chapter 9. John chapter 9, a man blind from birth is brought to Jesus. And here's what the Bible says. They ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you see what the assumption is here? You're born blind because somebody committed particular sin. It's either him or some generational curse. Which is it? We already know it's one or the other. Just which is it? That's the assumption. Here's Jesus' answer. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus healed the man. And those works of God were indeed displayed. We sometimes use folk wisdom to process what's happening to someone. So we say things like, well, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. There's just so much going on in this guy's life, there's got to be some fire there. Where there's smoke, there's fire. We throw that out and, and thereby condemn someone to be guilty of something we know nothing about. It is true, obviously, that where there's smoke, there must have previously been a fire. But you need to show that that smoke is connected to this fire in order to make a statement like that. Counsel can be ignorant. It can draw unsupported conclusions, unnecessary conclusions. And then I say in your outline, it can make unwarranted accusations, unwarranted accusations. Eliphaz continues his speech on into chapter 5. And in verse 1, he says, 
Call if you will, but who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. I myself have seen a fool taking root, but suddenly his house was cursed. Verses one, verse 1 is saying, Eliphaz is saying to Job, you have no one to defend your defenseless position, Job. It's clear what's going on here. And then verses 2 and 3 accuse Job of being a resentful and envious fool. You ever have someone just unload on you? They find you in a, a bad way for whatever reason. And, and maybe it's somebody that you've been close to, but they've been, you know, the, the battle is won or lost in the mind, friends. What are they thinking every time they see you and every time they converse with you? And then suddenly it comes out. They tell you what they really think of you. And you're thinking, this has been your opinion of me all along. I had on one occasion someone who had decided that I was a really bad guy. Could be any number of you. <laughs> and uh, this person came to me with no less than 27 accusations about me. Now, those of you that are members of our church are saying, uh, as a member of this church, I want to see that list, okay? What's our pastor doing? Every last, every last one of those was something that I had said or done, which had to be interpreted and could be interpreted either in a positive or a negative light. And they chose the negative light on every last one. This is an example, and this is not an uncommon example of the list. There was a negative motivation read into the fact that when we have church gatherings and I'm at a picnic, I go around and I meet and greet and shake hands with everybody there. That's a bad thing. You didn't know that, perhaps, but apparently it is. Because that's me being a politician. All right, now look. May, could that be true? Of course it could. Anytime that kind of thing could be true. The question is, is it true and how do you know? And how can you make then that kind of unwarranted accusation? And all of what Eliphaz and then his friends are going to do is based on the speculation in chapter 4, the unsupported and unnecessary conclusions, and now the knife is thrust and turned and accusations are made. And they are unwarranted and extremely hurtful accusations. Verse 5 of chapter 5. The children of the fool are far from safety. Wow. This is a man who lost all ten of his children. Job lost his ten sons and daughters in a single day, and it must have been because he's morally unfit in some way. He's a fool, says Eliphaz. And what's the answer to all of this? Well, it's repentance. Verse 8. If I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. He provides rain for the earth. He sends water on the countryside. The lowly he sets on high. Those who mourn are lifted to safety. He's saying God is good and he'll respond to your repentance by blessing you. 
You're not blessed now because of sin, but forsaking your sin will result in blessing. So much so that if you'll look down in verse 25 of chapter 5, verse 25, your children will be many, your descendants like the grass of the earth. You will come to the grave in full vigor like sheaves gathered in a season. In, in a season. We have examined this and it is true. So hear it and apply it to yourself. Job, you've counseled others. That's why he said what he said near the beginning of chapter 4, but now you've got to apply it to yourself. And Eliphaz here has not only speculated in ignorance, he's put the most uncharitable interpretation on what is happening, resulting in unwarranted conclusions about Job. And if Job protests, which he will, what are the friends thinking? (laughs) Well, you're in denial. Job, you're denying the obvious. Look at what's happening to you. Are you saying, Job, you never sin? Surely you're not so prideful as to claim that you have nothing to repent of. But you see, that doesn't get to the issue. The question is not, is Job a sinner? We said in the very first message in this series, of course Job is a sinner. The question is, is what's happening here caused by some sin? Why is Job suffering as he is? I gave this example to you of unwarranted assumptions that we make that then can result in unwarranted uh, accusations. I gave it to you some time ago, but I like it, so I'm giving it again. I knew he was too proud to take criticism, thought Anne, and now I have proof. On the previous Sunday, Anne had dropped a prayer card in the offering plate asking her pastor to stop in and pray with her when she went to the hospital for some minor surgery. When he failed to come by, she called the church secretary and learned that her pastor had already been to the hospital that day to see another church member. So he has no excuse, she thought. He was in the building, he knew I needed his support, and he still ignored me. He's resented me ever since I told him his sermons lack practical application. Now, a pastor would never do that. Now, we might. Now, he's getting back at me by ignoring my spiritual needs, and he calls himself a shepherd. After brooding over his rejection for three days, Anne sat down Saturday evening. She wrote a letter confronting her pastor about his pride, his defensiveness, and his hypocrisy. As she sealed the envelope, she could not help thinking about the conviction he's going to feel when he opens his mail. The moment she walked into church the next morning, one of the deacons hurried over to her. Anne, I need to apologize to you. When I took the prayer cards out of the offering plates last week, I accidentally left your card with some pledge cards. I didn't notice my mistake until last night when I was totaling the pledges. I'm so sorry I didn't get your request to the pastor. Before Anne could reply to the deacon, her pastor approached her with a warm smile. Pastors with a warm smile. Anne, I was thinking about your comment about practical application as I finished my sermon yesterday. I hope you noticed the difference in today's message. Anne was speechless. All she could think about was the letter she had just dropped in the mailbox three blocks from the church. The moral of that story is, if you ever think it's my fault, it's a deacon's fault. Okay? But you see, you're putting an interpretation on what someone did or did not do. And very often you don't know. It's an ignorance. 
If someone delays answering an email or fulfilling a commitment, we assume too easily that he's avoiding us or evading responsibilities. Could it be he's been in the hospital? Could it be he's overwhelmed by other responsibilities? If our children don't complete their chores on time, we conclude they're being disobedient. Maybe they got distracted and a simple reminder would help. If an employer fails to give us a raise, we assume she's unappreciative or greedy. Could she be struggling to keep the business going in the face of increasing competition and operating costs? If someone at church seems unfriendly, we assume she's proud and aloof. Could it be she feels awkward and unsure of herself and is hoping someone will reach out to her? If the elders do not accept a proposal that we make, we may conclude that they're narrow-minded, they don't understand or appreciate our opinions or needs. Could it be God is leading them to give priority to a different ministry? If church members raise questions about policies or programs, church leaders might conclude the members are stubbornly unwilling to consider new ideas or stretch themselves to grow. They may even be labeled as rebellious troublemakers. But could it be they have legitimate insights and concerns that deserve a careful hearing? Friends, we don't know. We have a responsibility before God to love one another and put the most charitable interpretation on what someone has done or not done until proven otherwise. I want to end by giving you three ways that we judge critically. First, we think negatively of the qualities of others. When we develop a critical attitude toward others, we start a subtle but steady process of selective data gathering. We easily overlook or minimize others' good qualities, while at the same time we search for and we magnify unfavorable qualities. As we find faults that reinforce opinions we've already formed, we seize them eagerly, saying to ourselves and sometimes to other people, see, I told you so. One critical judgment looks for and feeds on another, and the person's character is steadily diminished and ultimately destroyed in our minds. The second way, the first way, is we think negatively of the qualities of others. The second way we judge others wrongly is to think the worst of their words and actions. We hear rumors of conversations or observe fragments of an opponent's opponent's behavior. Instead of searching for a favorable interpretation or giving them a chance to explain, we prefer to put the worst construction on what they've done. Proverbs warns of this. It says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. We overlook things that are in the person's favor and we focus on the things that seem to be against him. To top it off, we fill in the gaps with assumptions, finally judge the person to have done wrong. The third and most insidious type of critical judgment is to assume the worst about others' motives. Some people are habitually cynical. They're distrustful or suspicious of others' nature or motives. Others assume the worst only in certain people. In either case, the effect's the same. They're quick to attribute others' actions to an unworthy motive. Pride, greed, selfishness, control, rebellion, stubbornness, favoritism, whatever. When doing this, they think or say things like, all he cares about is money. She likes to go first so she can impress everyone. They're too proud to listen to advice. What he really wants is to force us out of the group. She's just too stubborn to admit she is wrong. All of these appraisals may be true on some occasions. In many cases, they'll be false. So is there ever a time that we can firmly form a firm opinion about someone's motives? The answer is yes. We may do that. When the other person expressly admits to such motives or when there's a pattern of incontrovertible facts that can lead to no other reasonable conclusion. But when 
Such clear proof is not there. It's wrong to presume that we can look at others' hearts and judge the motives of their actions. Scripture warns about this. Only God knows the motives of the heart. 1 Samuel 16, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Psalm 44, God knows the secrets of the heart. Proverbs 16, motives are weighed by the Lord. So here's your take-home truth. The counsel that we give and that we receive must be based on truth. Both that we give and that we receive. We're going to pray in just a moment. Let me just say one of the many, many benefits of a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ is that in our relationships, we're not in competition with each other. And we're not in competition with each other because we all have the same ultimate favor from God in Jesus. Right? That Jesus has covered all of my sin and Jesus has covered all your sin if you're his child. I'm not in competition with you. You're not in competition with me. That's one of the many benefits then of how we interact with one another. I'm not looking to bring you down to put myself up or put myself up so I can bring you down. And that should be the case for each of us in our interactions with each other. There are many, many such implications. Those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, let's be thankful then that we can have relationships that are not based on motives for what we get out of each other or we even get from God. But we can love each other purely out of the joy of loving one another and expressing the character of God in our relationships. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the blessing of this sacred hour, the opportunity to open your word and to be instructed therein. Lord, you teach us both by positive proclamation, statements, Things we're to do and things we're to avoid. You teach us by the narratives that you've given in your word, the stories of how people with whom you have dealt in the past, people that are representative of us, have acted and reacted. And Lord, we thank you for then the story of Job. And we thank you for the, what it teaches us about you, what it teaches us about us. Lord, I pray that you will help us now in our relationships beginning this afternoon, beginning in Cafe Community, to deal with each other in truth. We serve the God of truth. Grant us, Lord, the humility to say, I don't know when I don't have all the facts. And help us, Lord, to deal with each other in love as you have dealt with us in love. Making charitable assumptions, drawing loving conclusions about each other. Unless and until we are forced to conclude otherwise. And as a result of this, Lord, may the bonds of your people in your church be the strongest bonds on earth. And Lord, may people be able to look at us, as Jesus said, and say they are his disciples because they love one another. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.